Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each episode begins with this one question. Our guests come from all walks of life. YouTube celebrities, comedians, historians, even neighbors from the small mountain community that I live in. They're people who love history and get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is the place where they became curious, then entered the rabbit hole into discovery. Fueled by an unrelenting need to know more, we look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. Armchair Historians is an independent, commercial-free podcast. If you'd like to support the show and keep it ad-free, you can buy us a cup of coffee through Ko-fi, or you can become a patron through Patreon. Links to both in the episode notes. I love history, and I love podcasts about history. And as host and producer of Armchair Historians, I have had the great pleasure of connecting with other history podcasters. Some I have even invited to be a guest on the show. And, to my surprise, have accepted. I don't know about you, but once I get caught up on all the podcasts that I subscribe to, I get a little antsy. I want something to fill the void. This is when I turn to family and friends for recommendations, and then, of course, the good old-fashioned Google search. So I've decided that moving forward on Armchair Historians, I'll offer some of these podcast recommendations to you, my listener. In some cases, like today, I'll even do a trailer swap with other podcasts I admire. I would also love it if you, my listeners, would offer some of your own podcast recommendations. You can do this by messaging me on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today, my recommendation is... Journalism History Podcast, and I love this podcast, as it focuses on the history of the media as they covered historic events. So much history, so little time. Be sure to stick around after the trailer, as my guest for this inauguration 2021 special episode is co-host and executive producer of the Journalism Podcast, Dr. Terry Finneman. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Guys, we did it. Starting tomorrow, the first woman of color no less, of Indian descent no less, in United States history will move into number one observatory circle, Washington, D.C., with her husband, our first second gentleman, Doug Emhoff. So here's a recap of some of the firsts. First woman vice president, first woman of color vice president, first woman of Indian descent vice president, and America's first second gentleman. And today, to celebrate this momentous event in history, 
On the eve of Inauguration Day, my guest is journalism professor, former political reporter, executive producer of the Journalism History Podcast, and author of the book Press Portrayals of Women Politicians, 1870s to the 2000s. Her research focuses on how women in politics are portrayed in the media, with an emphasis on women politicians, first ladies, and the history of the suffragette movement. On a side note, I have a little correction corner. For some reason throughout the interview, I keep referencing Madam Vice President Harris as the first woman in the White House, which even though she'll visit the White House, she and the second gentleman will actually live at number one Observatory Circle, which is the resident of the United States Vice President. Terry Finneman, welcome and thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Sure, I'm so excited. And I just want to say that I was listening to your Kamala Harris special edition this morning. And you know, this past year and everything that's going on the past four years has taught me, if anything, never to get your hopes up. Don't think about the possibility that we might have a woman in the White House. And so, you know, just head down, keep moving forward, vote, encourage people to vote. And then we find out that, you know, that Saturday morning, I remember I was sitting at the coffee shop outside, of course, socially distancing. And Kamala, like, to me, that was the story. That was it. She's a woman and she's a woman of color. And, you know, I just, I want to stop for a minute and celebrate that with you because I could hear your excitement in the episode that you did about that. And, you know, yay. 2016, I thought for sure Hillary was in. I was so overflowing with joy and excitement about this progress in our country. And then we know what happened. So here we are. Anyways. Thank you so much for uh, suggesting the topic that you're going to talk about. Uh, I didn't know about it, and it's the perfect history to talk about at this momentous occasion. So let's just get into it and tell us, what is your favorite history that you're going to be talking about today? Well, normally I would answer the early 1900s, since that's what a lot of my research focuses on. But I have a really special place uh, for the year 1872, which is the year that the first woman ran for president in the United States. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Oh, that's exciting. I, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know that. So Most people um, that's, don't. That's why I'm are armchair historians, because I'm not a historian. I just get really stoked about learning things about history. So this will be a great history class for me. So tell us about it. Yeah. So, I mean, I also study suffrage history. So I'm probably going to back up a little bit and talk a little bit about that, because that that also influences 1872 and what I'm going to be talking about today. And so you have Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott going to a world anti-slavery conference in England uh, around 1840 and wanting to participate in that and being told that they couldn't because they were women. 
And that really got the seeds going for the start of the suffrage movement. Most people think of 1848 and Seneca Falls as the launch, but those seeds you can really back up to much sooner. Uh, and really, if we're being honest, much sooner than that, because of course, Native American women in this country uh, have had women dominated cultures for much longer. And the leaders of the suffrage movement were also very influenced by them um, and seeing the kind of rights that women had there. So this is 1848. Of course, uh, the Civil War interrupted uh, the women's rights movement. Right, right after that, uh, you have this push for women to be included in the 14th and 15th Amendments, giving women the right to vote. So this is some of the context that leads us up to 1872. But backing up, I think it's really important to talk about the context of who Victoria Woodhull was. Uh, Victoria Woodhull being the first woman to run for president in our country, and how her childhood and early years influenced what she would later become. So talking a little bit about her backstory, Victoria Woodhull was born in Ohio, and she was considered her family to be the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak. Her father was a pretty unsuccessful businessman, and he would tell his family that their rightful place in the world had been taken from them. And when you're a child hearing this from your father, right, I, th I think you kind of grow up with a, a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. She was from a large family, of course, as, as was common in the 1800s. Uh, and she, uh, she and her sister, Tenny, and this would come into play later, um, they would be clairvoyants as a way to earn money, spiritualists, because when, when your father isn't doing well in business, right, you need to chip in. So one of the most significant turning points, though, in Victoria Woodhull's life, she was, you know, 14, 15 years old, and she became very sick, and a Dr. Woodhull came to treat her. And as was common, you know, you you tended to marry women off young, right? So then somebody else would financially support them. So Victoria Woodhull finds herself at, you know, 15 years old, married to Dr. Woodhull, who isn't actually a doctor, but is an alcoholic and a womanizer. And so by the time she is 16, 17 years old, uh, she has a baby, she is in a very unhappy marriage, and she knows very well at this time that women have virtually no rights, that it is deemed acceptable in culture for, for men to, you know, wink, wink, have side affairs and be able to do all these things. But, you know, divorce certainly was an appalling thing at this time. And she was very, very frustrated um, to be put into this position and have virtually no rights. And so that would also significantly play into her future run for president. So she's in this unhappy relationship. Uh, she and Tenny are doing their spiritualism kind of work. Can I just stop you there for a second? Because I caught that this morning, something that I was reading. And um, did she really believe that stuff? Or was it just a means to an end, do you think? Well, you know, that's really hard to say. I mean, this kind of thing was popular during this time with the changes in religion that were going on, um, with the belief that there was more of a connection to the outside world. Of course, after the Civil War, especially with so many dead in this country, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, of course, believes and we know believes in spiritualism. So this was something that people did believe in during this time. Now, whether Victoria did or not, I, I think that's a little hard to say. Because she has been erased from history, 
even by fellow women, which we'll get into later, it's a little hard to know what her personal beliefs were or if she just saw this as a good opportunity. I have to think she maybe believed in it a little bit because her mother was also very much in, into spiritualism. Victoria was named after Queen Victoria because as, a, as soon as she was born, her mother decided she was you know, deemed for greatness. <laughs> and so um, certainly she got this from her mother anyway. Yeah, I just was curious about that. No, that was a great question. Yeah, sorry. I can talk forever about this woman because I love her so much. <laughs> so I just start talking. <laughs> no, keep talking. I love it. I'm hanging on every word. Uh, anyway, so uh, Victoria decides she's actually going to get divorced uh, from, from this Dr. Woodhull. By now, she has two children with him, one of whom has special needs. Uh, of course, with the medicine at this time, they didn't know any better. And so she thought her husband's alcoholism had an influence on the special needs of her child. Um, and so she ends up getting divorced. She ends up marrying a man uh, named Colonel Blood. It almost sounds like a Clue figure. I love the movie Clue. Uh, Colonel Blood, who uh, <laughs> fought in the Civil War. Uh, and they ended up becoming political partners, essentially. And he was very supportive of her. Anyway, they end up moving to New York because um, by this time, states start clamping down on clairvoyance because they think it's quack science, right? Uh, and so they end up moving to New York because uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, the Vanderbilt rich guy that people have heard about, uh, he does believe in this. And so Victoria and her very beautiful young sister, Tenny, uh, go doing some work for Cornelius Vanderbilt. Now, there are rumors that Tenny and the elderly Vanderbilt had a relationship, which the Vanderbilt children were very much against. Um, the extent of their relationship, you know, I don't know, but it was clearly enough that their children wanted uh, Victoria and Tenny out of their father's life. Um, anyway, so they have this relationship with Cornelius Vanderbilt, uh, who gives Victoria some tips on how to play the stock market. And she ends up winning a, a decent amount of money. And she becomes the first woman in our history to have her own firm on Wall Street. So because of this, I think a lot of people, when I started talking about Victoria Woodhull, assume, well, she's some third party, no name, nobody, but she wasn't. She was very well known during this time. And having this firm on Wall Street was the was the start of her becoming well known because the newspapers covered this because this was so weird. <laughs> this was weird. And so she got a lot of press coverage. So what year was this now? What time frame is this? Around 1870 ish. I'd have to double check, but it, it wasn't that long before her run for president. And so they're getting all this news coverage. Well, at this time, the women suffragists are really amping up their arguments or had that that women needed to be included in the 14th and 15th amendments and getting the right to vote. And so Victoria Woodhull finds these women fascinating, right? She's now in New York. She's now more so in the center of power. She's out of Ohio. And she wants to join and be part of these women suffragists. And the belief is that she was the first woman to testify before Congress and that she was arguing that women should be included in the 14th and 15th amendments. And so there's a very famous newspaper image illustration of a woman testifying before Congress, and that's Victoria Woodhull. And so she's gaining more prominence with the suffragists and she starts joining in with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And so she was a major player during this time, which gave her more name recognition. 
Now, <laughs> Victoria Woodhull, uh, with the life that she has led, ended up having some controversial views for her time, uh, which even are still controversial to some people today, uh, in that her platform was free love. And she believed that people should be able to love whoever they want, however long they want, whenever they want. Scandalous! Oh my God! Yes, right. I mean, right in a country that has only allowed same-sex marriage for you know limited time, right? You can only—I mean, not that she was advocating for that in 1872, um, but free love in general. So you can imagine how scandalous this was to people at this time. And she, her views were becoming so liberal that Susan B. Anthony's tolerance for Victoria Woodhull. <laughs> Oh, Victoria, just hold it in a little bit. Oh, my God. Became quite thin. Um, so Susan B. Anthony, we have to understand the perspective of the moderate suffragists as well. Mm-hmm. They knew that they had an uphill battle here trying to convince men to give women the right to vote. Mm-hmm. And they did not want any kind of fringe sideshow, so to speak, to influence that, right? They were trying to show that women were responsible, you know, due to who could handle having the right to vote, right? So Susan B. Anthony did not, ended up not like it. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, I think, was trying to be a, a bit of a mediator between these two women and see both sides of it. But Susan was just like, no, we're done here. And so when Victoria Woodall got up at a, at a future suffrage convention uh, to talk, Susan was like, no, and she just shut it down. <laughs> Shut it down. And so this is one of the reasons that Victoria Woodhull has been erased from history, because when the history of the suffrage movement was written, even though Victoria Woodhull had played a really big role in testimony, she was written out. She was just written out even at that time already. So Victoria Woodall decides to run for president. She is running in theory against Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> you know, nobody's going to beat Ulysses S. Grant at this time, right? And, and Horace Greeley, who was a newspaper publisher. She gets very frustrated by the press coverage of her, which we're going to talk about more in a minute. And so she launches her own newspaper with her sister, Tenny. Now, she's not the first woman in this country to to run a newspaper, but certainly a pioneer in 1872 to have your own publication. And there were also suffrage publications at this time. So there were other women-focused publications. Uh, But she was so frustrated with her media coverage that she launches her own newspaper. And so another really great story about Victoria Woodhull that tends to surprise people is, is that Frederick Douglass was her running mate. Now, the catch here, the catch here, no, the catch here is that Frederick Douglass did not agree to be her running mate. They just put his name on the ticket with her. She just put his, because I read something about that this morning about him saying that, you know, he wasn't going to be her running mate. Right. Yeah. No, no, he did not agree. Um, And then there was rumors in the newspaper that Spotted Tail, uh, a notable Native American chief was going to be her running mate along with some of course very racist commentary that went along with that um and so that kind of was the coverage uh surrounding it now you have to remember at this time and people today should be very familiar with it with the media environment we're in but there was an extremely partisan press at this time objectivity was was not something that really took hold in the journalism industry until the early 1900s 
And so you have an extremely partisan press. So this is essentially Fox News, MSNBC, full on all the time, (laughs) all the time. Right. And so she has this very, very partisan environment that she's dealing with. And of course, in the newspaper industry, predominantly run by men. So these are men reporters, editors, publishers who have very little tolerance uh, for women's rights and these kinds of things at the time. And so you see the, the chapter of my book is called Media Vilification of Victoria Woodhull. And what's the name of your book? Yes, my book is Press Portrayals of Women Politicians, 1870s to the 2000s. So it starts with Victoria Woodhull. And then I go throughout history looking at how some other notable women have been covered by the press and how word changes have changed throughout. Now, one of the things I want to make crystal clear, because I am a continue to work as a journalist now, um, that's kind of a side career I have in addition to being a professor. I've worked, but before I became a professor, I, I worked in the industry for a number of years as a as a reporter and political reporter. One of the things you have to keep in mind coming off of this enemy of the people age that we're in, so I especially want to make this clear, is that newspapers of the time are reflective of the society that they are covering, right? We are not some separate kind of entity. And so my job as a historian is I analyze newspaper articles to get a better feel for what a culture was like in a particular time in American history. So even though we can say, yes, these articles were written by male journalists, they're reflective of the broader American culture. And so these newspaper articles are focusing on her ties with the suffrage movement. It is well known, right, her her early connections with Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton with the suffragists. They're also focusing on her politics. She had more of a platform than free love. Uh, It it was beyond that. She was also fighting for things uh, that we take for granted today, like, you know, minimum wage, some workers' rights, right, some of these things. So she had actually a pretty full platform, and she actually did get some positive newspaper coverage from people applauding that she actually had a platform and was talking about issues, right? Sometimes today we have politicians who don't even want to talk about issues. Or not issues beyond maybe one or two. But the coverage was very sharp. So this is an example of some of the coverage she received. This ran in a newspaper in Arizona. Her connection with a movement damns that movement. She may be mad, but she is impure in thought and depraved in expression. Her ideas are not merely preposterous. They are revoltingly indecent and nasty. So this is the tone of the media coverage of the first woman to run for president in this country. And as my book illustrates, this is a tone that has not gone away. I keep thinking of Kamala's uh, Chucks. Yes, yes, yes. So let's, yeah, we can talk about that too. Now with Victoria Woodhall, they did not so much focus on her appearance and any of the coverage that I read. Um, But the second chapter of my book, which focuses on Jeanette Rankin, the first woman elected to Congress, that's when you really start to see the emphasis on appearance. There were full articles just about the color of her hair, (laughs) of Jeanette Rankin's hair. And so, yes, this, this emphasis on appearance, um, is ingrained 
as far back Still, as there yeah. is. And the other thing I keep thinking about is some of the horrible, horrible things that uh, people have said about Michelle Obama. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. So it still exists. It's still there. Yeah. And I mean, going even further, so Victoria Woodhull, another, there's just an endless array of interesting stories with Victoria Woodhull. Um, She, of course, she was very frustrated because she knew full, again, she was not some random third party weirdo. She, I mean, people knew her. She was mixing with the, prominent people of this time, right, up to Vanderbilt himself. Um, And so she knew very well that there were prominent men having affairs, you know, preachers even. And and it's hard for people to imagine today the status of a preacher, of a minister during this time. These were like celebrities, right? I mean, so to speak, how prominent ministers used to be. Um, And so she knew that some of these people were having affairs. And so she basically told some of them, if you don't support me, I'm going to expose you. And she did. (laughs) So she used her newspaper pages to expose some of these prominent men. And as a result, she ended up being arrested essentially for publishing obscene material (gasps) And she ends up spending election day, day sitting in jail, not even being able to attempt to vote for herself. I mean, the stories just never end with this woman with how spunky she was, right? And she was telling the truth. She was telling the truth. But of course, nobody back then wanted to hear it or believe that this could be true. Uh, so she ends up in, ele- in jail on election day. Now, a, an important side note to mention here, because people tend to ask me, well, did she actually receive any votes? So Victoria Woodall was actually not old enough to run for president. She was only 34 years old when she was doing this. Can you imagine the bravery of this woman at 34 Doing this, running for president, doing something that had never been done in American history, right? Um, so she wasn't actually old enough to run for president in the first place. So there's really no accounting of, of how many votes she even got, right? Because she wasn't even on the ballot. Well, did people, did they have write-ins back then? Did somebody write her in? That I don't know. And if they had, there wouldn't have been any kind of Record. accounting of yeah. it. So. Yeah, so this is the fascinating, fascinating story of Victoria. But now there was even more, um, you you know, she had the second marriage. Then Dr. Woodhull, her her former husband, ended up moving in with them because by this point, his alcoholism, it was more so she was trying to take care of her children's father. But when the press caught wind that she was living with her current husband and her former husband, that blew up, even though she was just trying to be a nice person, right? And then her mother accused her current husband of abusing her. And that, I mean, it was just like one scandal after, we think we're in a crazy age now, which we are, believe me, we are, this is this is not normal. Um, But the presidential campaign of Victoria Woodhull was also quite bizarre. First of all, I love this woman. Oh, my goodness. You know, just that she was an entrepreneur. Yes. And the fact that she has been erased from history, apparently. And I am going to make it my goal to make sure that people know about her. And I'm so glad that you're sharing this history with me. You know, those are the women that I love throughout history, the ones who just 
obviously before her time, she knew who she was, what she thought, what she believed in, and she did not waver from that, from everything you've said. Yes, and, exactly. And that just, you know, it it lifts my spirit because there are touchstones, people in history that we can look back on and say just very clearly that because we all struggle. I struggle, you know, with what to say, what to do, what's right, whose feelings not to hurt. I admire people in general who have what I consider right on their side and in in the midst of great adversity still hold to their truth. And this is just such an inspiring story. So did she, was she able to hold on to her wealth? So what happened after election day is, you know, she gets out of jail, obviously. And then she ends up discovering that she and Colonel Blood don't really have a whole lot in common anymore. Like, I mean, they were more so, even though they were married, they were more so kind of political partners. And once her political career was essentially over, they didn't really have much in common anymore. Uh, so she ends up getting divorced again. <laughs> um and she ends up actually moving to England. So I guess I shouldn't say no to your or yes to your, whatever your question. Um, she ends up actually moving to England and gets married a third time. And then yes, she she actually marries a man who is well off. I can't remember now if he's a lord or he's you know has some kind of fine position in British society. And she ends up marrying him. And then finally, yes, gets the financial stability and security that you know. She frankly, I think, deserved after after everything she had been through in her life. Uh, she and her daughter ended up starting another newspaper, and and so, so she ends up getting some stability toward the end of her life. But you know, back here in the United States, it's frustrating to see as a historian that so Belva Lockwood ended up being the next woman to run for president uh, in 1884, I believe. And just looking, I haven't done a deep dive into Belva and her story. But just looking at a little bit of that newspaper coverage, you have newspapers writing that she's the first woman to run for president. And so we're talking within 15 years, Victoria Woodhull has already been erased from history, which is just astounding to think about. And as I said, the suffragists of the time basically erased her from their histories. And Victoria Woodhull... I'm just going to read this little snippet from my book because this says so much. I also cover the anti-suffrage movement, uh, which is taking a look at the women against the expansion of their own rights and trying to understand who these women were and what their strategies were and why they were doing this. And so one of the things that Victoria Woodhull was so frustrated about, she was advocating for women's rights and some of her loudest opponents were other women, were other women. And she was so frustrated by this. And so she's quoted in a newspaper in August 1872 saying this, they have vilified us long enough and patience has ceased to be a virtue. We have endeavored to show the world what a woman can do by industry and honesty. And yet we are daily maligned and insulted. By whom? By women. It is too much. I can't stand it and I won't. And as somebody, again, who suffered, who studied the anti-suffrage movement, this is, we're talking 1872. I mean, this goes all the way up to 1920 and beyond. And so it is, it is very, very frustrating. I mean, 
what what other group is advocating against the expansion of their own rights? It's it's interesting to say the bizarre. least. Bizarre, interesting, and still bizarre to a degree. How did you stumble onto this history? Yeah, that's a good question. So, as I said, I'm a former political reporter. I've always loved history because my grandmother loved history and she was such an important figure in my life. And so as I was trying to think what to do my dissertation on, I was sitting in class and the professor played a video and I have never, and usually when I give my book talks, I play this video at the beginning and it is a roundup of snippets from cable news from both sides from men and women. And it is nonstop snippet after snippet after snippet of disgusting sexism against women in politics, especially against Hillary Clinton uh, from coverage from 2008 when she was running for president. And every time I play this video, like, I don't know how many times I've given my book talk many, many times in the, in the last four or five years since my book came out. And I still, I still will tear up with rage every single time because that is how in my audience is just left stunned every time. Because think about it. We hear these snippets in passing all the time in our culture, all of the time. But when you just hear one snippet at a time, it's just in the background. It's normal, right? But when you see them mashed together, back to back to back, you realize what a problem this is. And that was the whole purpose of writing my book. I analyzed 1,300 newspaper articles. I read 1,300 newspaper articles for my book to illustrate this problem is like a snowball that has grown bigger and bigger and bigger and not... Certainly we've made some progress, right? And that's what I'm sure we're going to talk about next with Kamala Harris. Certainly we've made some progress. But this snowball has been building for over a century now. And we need to say enough is enough. This is not, this should not be normal. Agreed. Can I find that video? Is that somewhere? On yeah, the I can send that to you. Sure. Yep. Okay. Because it's on YouTube. I'll put it in the episode notes along with, yeah. you know, information about your books and your podcasts and any place you might want to send somebody to, to get more information about this history. You know, I don't know, something happened the other, the past, past two days and I can't remember what it was. And it just really hit me. And the sentiment I keep feeling is like enough, enough is enough. You know, I, that's what I'm Joe Biden a, said. Yeah. I'm, I'm a white woman. I grew up in a, a conservative home and that sound clip the past week, I've just been really aware of a lot of the messaging that I've, I've gotten and how, you know, we've been put down and held back. And I do have this sense of no, I feel very strongly now. And it's hard. It's hard to press forward against that. And I get it. And I can see why women have retreated and even gone against their own own interests because of this fear, you know, this fear that something really bad's going to happen. I'm going to lose everything. Uh, I yeah. can't take I can't take care of myself. Yeah. Society is going to look down on me, like all that messaging. And oh, it's it's a continuum. I do feel hopeful. I feel hopeful, but I feel like we have to be 
extra diligent, extra diligent now moving forward. Maybe you could talk a little bit about Kamala and what you think about that. And historically, from your perspective as a historian and a journalist. Yeah. Um, before I talk about that, I realized I should say one very important note. Um, and that is that my book is nonpartisan. Uh, that a lot of the women in my book are Republican women, actually, and that this is not just a Republican issue or a Democratic issue, but this is a societal issue with women from both parties having to deal with this extra layer of sexism. And so I always just like to make that very clear that this is a, a women in politics issue that I discuss, not just a Republican or Democratic issue that I discuss. But as far as as Kamala in particular, it's been interesting. As you were talking about at the beginning and what a significant moment this is for women, I think there are a lot of men who still don't get it, who still don't get what this means for us, that this is actually happening. Because when you're so used to being represented in society, it doesn't hit you, but but I think you're absolutely right that for a lot of women, this is an extremely emotional moment that, you know, we're not at the presidency yet. But I mean, think about it, 1872. We could go back to 1848, really, right? I mean, and it's 2021 in the United States of America. I mean, just let that sink in. I mean, this is monumental. Really, it really is. And that's just from the women's side. I mean, oh my goodness, we could we could talk for another hour about the people of color side, right? And, and what they have all been through uh, to get to this moment. And so this is really, really an astounding moment in history. Um, now, certainly all of the women who ran for president in the last cycle, uh, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, all of them, face their own share of sexist coverage as well. In fact, we talked about it in my class where I had students uh, Google and, and look at some of the coverage of these women while they were running and the students were surprised. Now that they were told, you know, specifically look for this, then it suddenly, you know, became much more apparent. Uh, and so, yes, and, and it's going to be interesting to see the kind of coverage that she receives in the next four years. It's going to be interesting to see the coverage that her husband receives in the next four years. Yeah, we haven't even talked about that. Yeah, as the first second gentleman and to see what kind of a role he forms, right? Because I also study coverage of first ladies and that is very important. And, and Martha Washington, back in the day, knew the kind of pressure she was under about what kind of precedent she was setting for future first ladies. And I would have to imagine that Kamala's husband, even though he seems like a pretty chill guy from just the little I've, I've seen about him, uh, I'm sure that he must feel a little bit of that pressure as well as, as far as what kind of precedent he is going to be setting as well. So we're just in such a fascinating time as history is unfolding before us. Well, I live in Colorado. So Governor Polis and his husband, his husband is the first gentleman of, and it's been really exciting to watch. It's been heartbreaking because people are so angry and cruel and mean. Ultimately, I believe that it kind of comes back to their brokenness, but it's hard to have compassion for people uh, when they're 
you know, spewing such vitriol. I think he's going to be great because, like you said, he's very chill. And if anybody can step up to this, it will be him. The world is changing. The United States is changing. But with that change, it's like I see the forces of good and evil just really hitting up against each other. No major change in U.S. history has ever occurred easily. Right. Well, yeah, and it's kind of like the macrocosm of the microcosm. <laughs> my life and my family and my interactions with individuals, it's, it is it is the bigger picture. My mother was born in Belgium when she was eight years old. The uh, Germans invaded. I'm actually working on a documentary. Here's my plug. I do this all the time. <laughs> a documentary called Last Train Leaving Belgium, and it's about children in the crossfires of war in Belgium, specifically from my telling of my mother's story. You know, my mother sadly passed away in 2017. She hadn't voted in 20 years Mm -hmm. up to 2016. She was not well, but my mother was so terrified about what was happening that she voted. She got out and she voted because she was always like, well, voting's for the younger generation. I didn't Mm -hmm. really agree with it, but she she said that Pence reminded her of Goebbels. And that terrified her and she voted. The reason that I'm saying this is because it's like the energy never goes away. And, you know, thank God that the guy that is occupying our house right now is not very smart. Thank God he's not he's not a Hitler, you know, as smart as Hitler was and organized because all that same energy and all those same forces are are playing out. and. I think that this subject about women, women moving forward, there's still those forces and we're going to see it. If anything I learned from the past four years, I think I was ignorant up until 2016, is that I can't be surprised about it. I have to see it. I have to look at it for what it is and I have to call it out. And I think a lot of us have gotten to that point and I'm feeling really hopeful about that. There's my soapbox. Yeah, and I mean, this is a lot of why I do so much public speaking and why I aim so much to give nonpartisan talks is because I do feel it is so important. And I think when we talk about history, it's less, I don't know what's the word. People don't get their fur up quite as as much when we're talking about history. That's a really good point. That is, Yeah, really as when point. we're talking about current times. And so when we put these kind of same issues in a historical perspective, I think that people are a little more open to hearing it. The last chapter of my book talks about Sarah Palin. And I usually don't like to get into history that that is that recent because people do still have high emotions about it. And so, of course, everybody wants to talk about my Sarah Palin chapter. And I think we do have to acknowledge the sexism that she faced in her campaign, which is why it was important to to include that and, and discuss that and to be discussing women of both parties when I give my suffrage talks to be talking about the impact this had on all women, because it really does take this mass public education, this media literacy education to try to make a dent into the significant issues that we continue to have today. I know you're right. And, and I was reading about, you know, doing a deep dive into the past 24 hours to try and be prepared. And I know, is it a chapter in your book about her? Yes. 
Okay, yeah. yeah. So my book focuses on four distinct women, Victoria Woodhull, who we've talked about, Jeanette Rankin, who I briefly mentioned, the first woman to run for Congress. She was a Republican. It covers Margaret Chase Smith in 1964, uh, the first woman placed in nomination for the presidency at a major party's convention, uh, and then Sarah Palin. And then a last chapter dabbles discussing Nancy Pelosi Hillary Clinton, my, my book starts out, of course, talking about Hillary Clinton as well and, and the kind of sexism that they have faced as well. Well, and I like that it challenged me because I thought about Sarah Palin and I thought, you know what, I probably, I probably need to look at it through your eyes because I have a bias there. And, yes, uh, and that comes up often in the people in my uh, public presentations who, who, will, who will say, yeah, you know, I may be do need to think about that, right? And that's what I just want people to do. I want you to think about it. You don't have to like, this is not about how I personally feel about Sarah Palin one way or another or Margaret Chase Smith, but this is acknowledging that this is a systemic issue in our culture that affects women from both parties. And we have to acknowledge that, that if you are voting against Sarah Palin because, you know, you think she's a witch or whatever, you are letting sexist views influence and not like what her actual policies are, right? That's what I'm arguing. Pick people based on their policies, not on some sexist trope about what they look like or you know, this double bind, I, I talk about that a lot in my chapter about Margaret Chase Smith and Sarah Palin, this double bind, and Hillary Clinton is most evident how you see this, um, this double bind, right, where women, if we are too competent or assertive, then we're a witch, right? But so then we try to overcompensate and be more feminine, right? You saw that with Hillary Clinton with the cookies, for example, and then we're deemed incompetent and not right. Or if you're young, why aren't you home with your children, right? Sarah Palin faced a lot of this. You should be taking care of your children. Look what's all going on with your children, right? So if you're a young woman in politics, you should be, but men don't have these questions. Right. Men who have more children than than Sarah Palin aren't asked, you know, why aren't you taking care of your children? So it's this double standard of women in general that I'm trying to call attention to, as, as well as many other uh, women advocates. Right. That, that this just isn't fair. As a woman, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. And men don't have this additional hurdle that they have to face to get into office. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a common refrain that the legal women voters often use. I can't remember what the number is, but, you know, it's women have to be asked multiple times to run for office before they agree to do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's like five, six, seven, something like that times before they'll run because they know they know that they are up against this extra hurdle of men who are ingrained into the system and that's the reason that Jeanette Rankin ended up becoming the first woman to run for Congress is because of the historical context of the time. It's because Montana in 1916 was just being flooded with people in the progressive era. And so they got another seat in the House. So she wasn't running against an incumbent. So she would tell people, vote for the incumbent and vote for me. <laughs> right. And she was a very savvy politician. So it wasn't quite that easy. But she became the first woman because she wasn't running against an incumbent. Mm -hmm. Still have a long way to go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
the name of the book is? Press Portrayals of Women Politicians, 1870s to the 2000s. And then I have a subhead that says from lunatic Woodhull to polarizing Palin, words used to describe them in the press. Oh, I love it. So this was just this little sample, little taste of what's in there. And, you know, if you want to find out more, definitely check out the book. So your podcast that you produce and you're a co-host, right? Yes, I'm the executive producer and then the co-host as well. I have a team of eight. There's eight of us on my team. Yeah, there's a journalism history podcast. So maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I just got off my year as essentially president, so to speak, of a group of a national organization of journalism historians. Uh, I'm a millennial. <laughs> and uh, so I'm very focused on on taking journalism history into, which is a little weird to say, into a modern kind of context, right? And in trying to entice the next generation of historians, one of the things that, and this is not new, um, but that colleges have dealt with is the importance of history and fighting for the liberal arts, right? And how important they are. And so as journalism curriculums, the last few years have gotten more interested in drones and AI, you know, the latest technology, right? A lot of us are fighting that his journalism history and history is still a critically important component of the curriculum. And so for me, modernizing us to be able to show we are still relevant, we still matter has been very important. And so it was uh, about two years ago now that I ended up launching our journalism history podcast to launch onto an incredibly growing area of our field of mass communication of podcasting that millions millions of people are listening to, right? And that Generation Z in particular is is clamming onto, right? To try to get these important stories of history. So, you know, our tagline is ripping out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I am a huge critic, as a lot of people will know, of K-12 history textbooks. <laughs> and and the same stories we are told over and over and over about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And, and believe me, they're great. They're great people. I'm not saying they aren't. But there is so much history we have never been told, especially about women's history and people of color. And so the point of the show is to get into these fascinating stories that people have never heard, but that did make an impression that did make a difference in American history. And so that's what our show focuses on. We just got done having a student podcast contest. We had college students from across the country uh, do their own delving, work on their multimedia skills and, and research and speech giving, right, to come up with their own history show. So we're excited that those will air in March. We continue to spread the message to all generations uh, that history matters and journalism history matters and journalism in its own regard matters. There are a lot of really good history podcasts out there, and I love there them. Because, and, and doing this allows me to sample them and reach out to people because we both love to talk about history and spread the word. So 
I, I definitely recommend the podcast. I listened to Walter Cronkite. That was interesting because I grew up in that house, you know, with Walter C- Cronkite, dad listening to the news. And we'd be sitting at the dinner table and he'd have the, the news up and he'd, he'd like make us all be really quiet and, you know, Walter Cronkite. But um, that was a great episode. Yeah, this afternoon, I'm actually taping shows about Titanic and that, you know, everybody thinks they know the story of Titanic. And I have two guests coming on sharing some fabulous unknown stories about Titanic and public relations and journalism coverage from that incident. I love it. I love it. Where do we see this history in pop culture? Why is, is there a movie about this woman? Uh, No, there actually was a documentary filmmaker who was working on a story about her, um, or maybe one or two, actually. And I think somebody was going to tape, come tape with me. And then the pandemic hit. (laughs) And and so uh, I think, yeah, documentary filmmakers are probably having a rough go of things right now. Um, So there are projects in the works. But uh, other than that... No, no movie, though, huh? That shocks me. What Don't, a colorful character. Yes. Yes. And there are two other books that have been written about her that formed a lot of my foundation for getting to know Victoria Woodhull. Uh, and then in addition to my delving into the newspaper articles on her. Um, and so I think that she's probably somebody, especially when we do get our first woman president, uh, I think she's somebody who's going to get a lot more attention in the coming years. Rightfully. So, you know, one of the other things I'm thinking about is you're talking about this blatant vitriol towards women and the way they're depicted in the media. Men are assertive and women are bitches, uh, just to kind of summarize it. But there is also a subtlety a subtle kind of way that we talk about, I'll say ourselves, that people, you know, talk about women in politics. And it's very subtle and almost more insidious. Um, You know, and I guess maybe the shoes was one of them. Right. I loved it because I have, I have uh, Chucks in pretty much every color. And I was like, oh my God, she's like, that's me. That's me. I have those shoes. So to me, that was like really cool. But um, some people were just aghast that she was wearing chucks. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, the broader issue is why was that a story in the first place? <laughs> I mean, right. Um, so, again, I, and one of the things that I'm fascinated in and also exploring is positive sexism, right? We talk a lot about the negative sexism, but there's also, as you just said, positive sexism, right? Um, you know, say, oh, she's wearing a great dress or she's, you know, well, that's very nice, but <laughs> why is that the emphasis, right? I mean, w- never once have we talked about the shoes that Mike Pence wears, Um but we did talk about the tan suit that Obama wore. Well, I, yeah, well, I don't know if we did so much as a certain segment of the yeah. media population that blew something out of proportion. But, you know, one incident compared to like five million on the other side yeah. isn't exactly equal weight. Right. Um, and so it's not so much that it's a problem, so to speak, to talk about her shoes. It's why are we talking about her shoes that not men's shoes as well. Why do you think we are talking about her shoes? Well, I mean, let's go back to 
Let's go back to a story about Elizabeth Warren and her dog in the headline that's, you know, or the portion of the story that mentioned her dog humanizes her. Right. So this kind of coverage about the shoes is the same kind of thing of, so to speak, humanizing her and why there is this need to humanize women in politics is befuddling. <laughs> We're humans already, right? Yeah. But I mean, this is something that has a long history in journalism history as well, right? With the women's pages, it was a way to get in the paper. And so it was focused on, you know, fashion and food. And those things are important. I'm not saying they aren't. They have long been trivialized when they are very, very important. But it, again, just kind of segments women into this, like, different category where the fashion and the food are, are such an overemphasis in, instead of realizing, you know, this is the woman who is going to be number two in the line of leader of the free world. <laughs> so there's just, like, this this disconnect, genderized language going on. How do we change that? By talking about it, by having shows like this, by making people think, making people think about how they think and how they talk and what they deem to be important and who they elect for office. In the fact that so much of politics is based simply on name recognition or, hey, I think I like that guy, <laughs> instead of thinking who is actually qualified and capable and smart enough to be the leader of the free world, right? We just don't spend enough time, I don't think, in American culture educating ourselves about politics and who we're voting for. And as we've seen lately, understanding how elections actually work. You know, people who can't even name their secretary of state, but somehow think that they are experts on voting machines and election laws has been quite befuddling to me the last few months. And so just civic education in general, I think, as well as media literacy, needs to be thoroughly reexamined, I think. Well, I applaud you because you are at the forefront of doing exactly what you just said, and that is putting this information out in the world, talking about it, sharing these little known histories that should be well known. You know, I is there hope? Do you think there's hope? Oh, there always is. There always is. You have to have hope. Look at Victoria Woodhull in 1872. Holy cow, that woman had enough hope and spunk to like last for 50 plus years, right? I mean, um, she did. She had hope. I'm sure she knew she was going nowhere, but somebody had to start it. Somebody had to speak up and say something and, and start change. And God help us, right? 1872, we still haven't seen a woman for president. So, I mean, her hope hasn't been realized yet. Um, but I can only, like, you know, we talk about this as historians that we spend so much time studying these people. We feel like they're our friends, like we actually know them. Um, and so, I just can't even imagine how just amazed she would be right now. Uh, you know, oh, it's just emotional to even think about what she would think of, of right now. So where will you be on Inauguration Day? What will you be doing? Oh, I'll be parked in front of my TV, uh, parked in front of my TV, um, probably doing live tweeting, probably trying to get more people to book me to give book talks. <laughs> 
<laughs> I had to get on more podcasts to talk about this important moment in women's yeah, history. Definitely. And you know what? I want to rephrase that. And again, I get emotional when I talk about this. I I'm that's fine. I'm with you, my friend. I'm with you, my friend. So I shouldn't just say an important moment in women's history. This is an important moment in history, period. It really is. It really is. And I thought we were going to see that in 2016 and I was completely prepared for it. I had, I had it all planned, <laughs> but this one, you know, it snuck in and here we are, here we are. And it worked out and God, can I tell you how much I loved it? The night that uh, Joe and Kamala came out on stage, <laughs> Kamala comes out and that, that music, that like soulful music was playing like, to me, that was every cell in my body changed in that moment. Yeah. Ah, thank you for sharing this moment with me. And yeah, you know, as I, I usually cry when I talk about my, when my book or watch that video. It just like always happens, even though I've been talking about this for four years already. It's still just you put your heart and soul into it. Yes. Well, and you are one of those women that I admire that, like I said about Victoria Woodhull, that you know your mind and you know what you believe and you have fought to push it forward in the midst of, I don't know all of your story, but I know that you have faced great adversity and probably vitriol just like the rest of them. Oh, I was told early on in my research process that my interest in studying first ladies was trivial. And that has spurred me every single day since. Good. That's what I like to hear. There you have it, guys. Dr. Terry Finneman. Be sure to check out the episode notes to find out more about the podcast, Journalism History, her book, the link to the YouTube video that she references, and much more. And yay, America, we did it. We really did it. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week.